All right, we're blessed with all kinds of wonderful musicians, and we thank the Lord for each and every one, and thankful for you this morning. Take God's Word and find Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we're going to talk about the greatness of our God and the birth of our Savior Jesus. Now, we're in a series on the chronology of Christmas, and last week, if you joined us, we started off in the Gospel of John, the Word was with God in eternity past, but now how did that word get himself from eternity past down to the present, and what does that actually mean for us? So what I want to do this morning, if I can make this of practical nature instead of just teach, 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 I would like to share four life lessons that you and I learn from the Christmas account of Jesus' birth. What does this mean to us? I mean, first of all, it really doesn't matter what it means to you. It matters what it means to God. But in another sense, it does matter what it means to us because how does this change our life? I mean, what does God's Word have to actually do with how you and I live, how we treat our wife, how we spend our money, how we live? Well, we want to share that this morning, and here is lesson number one. Are you ready? Because the quicker I get through four lessons, the faster you get to go home. Lesson number one, what do we learn? We learn that a delay in God's timing does not mean God's denial. A delay in his timing doesn't mean that he doesn't answer or he won't do. Now, why do I even say that? Well, when you think about the Christmas account or the birth announcement of Jesus, many things had to happen. There were 400 years in which God didn't say a word to the nation of Israel. No prophet. Nobody saw a revelation of God. Nobody shared a new word of God. 400 years. You know how long that is for people in the Jewish nation not to hear direct revelation from God? Well, we've been in existence how long in America? 230 what? About half the time that God was silent. We think we've been around for a long time, don't we? 400 years. What did God tell the nation? Well, Hold your place in Luke, because I haven't even got there, and go back to the book of Malachi. Now, it's not hard to find. Go to Matthew, turn back one book in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4. There's only a few verses, so I'm going to read this chapter in chapter 4. What did God say had to happen before he would intervene in history? Well, Malachi chapter 4 verse 1 says this, For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. Now, for those of you who didn't grow up on a farm and you don't know what stubble is, when you burn brush, when you chop down trees and limbs, all the little pieces that break off, little bitty, itty, bitty pieces, that is like stubble. Or it could be like in hay, when you cut hay and the stiff, brittle part that breaks off, And anybody who knows that knows that it catches fire really quick. So what God is saying here is all these evildoers and all these wicked people, when God comes back, are going to be like burning dry grass. That's how quick they're going to be consumed. They're not a problem for God. You know, all of the evil and the wickedness in the world today that we think is such a great problem, when the great day of God comes back, they will be like, stubble as fire blows over it that's what it's going to be like and that's the imagery now notice what he says the day is coming 
shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, that it will leave them neither root nor branch. He's going to lap them all up. All the wickedness, all the, it's going to be done away with. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statues and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. That's the Ten Commandments. No other gods before me. Don't make graven images. And write down the list. Honor father and mother. Don't steal. Don't covet. Remember those things, nation of Israel. Be faithful to do them. And behold, I'm getting to this point, verse 5. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Now what does that mean? Well, in context, what that means is this. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the fathers of the nation of Israel all looked for God to act. God gave covenants with them. He made promises with them. He told them He was going to come. And now God would take the hearts of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and He would cause their children to be faith followers just like their fathers. The children's hearts would turn to the fathers, and the fathers' hearts would turn to the children. Now, if we want to apply that today, what would we say? We would say, you know, that dads would get involved in the lives of their kids, and they would want their children to follow them. But technically speaking, this is talking about the nation of Israel finally realizing their God was going to act. And he says... Before, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He'll turn the hearts of the fathers of the children and the hearts of the children of their fathers unless I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So the last word in the Old Testament is curse. I'm going to come and strike with a curse. Period. Now, can you imagine God saying that? 400 years, he's going to strike with a curse. Now, here's what the nation of Israel interpreted that as. Oh, okay, God, all these Romans and all these wicked people besides us, because we're the good ones, you're going to come back and you're going to judge them and you're going to make us top dog and we're going to finally tell them how it is and we're going to rule the roost and we're going to... We're going to well, they had a big surprise coming. Because what he did, now turn back over to Luke, he decided that he was going to bring Elijah, but not like they expected. He was going to bring someone who was an Elijah-like figure, and he was going to come, and he had one mission. What was that? To prepare the hearts of people to meet Jesus. Now, can you imagine what the nation of Israel thought? Now, I want you all to hear me. We're looking back on history. When you read the Old Testament, what they thought was that a great deliverer would come out of heaven. He would be fully grown, fully God. He would come and he would rescue mankind. He would dominate their enemies and he would exalt the nation of Israel. They would be the head 
Everybody else would be the tail. And boy, did God do something that they didn't expect. Took him a long time. But he decided to do something that they, they could not imagine. And that is bring God the Son into the womb of a virgin. And have him be born as a short, small, little baby to be raised among men, ultimately to die and to save them from their sin. But before that would happen, he would have to have a forerunner. So what does God do? Well, he goes to a man named Zechariah. Zechariah, if you read Luke chapter 1, which I won't do all of, was a priest. He came from the lineage of David, and he also came from Aaron. He was all the qualifications that you could imagine. He had it. And the text says, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, verse 8 of Luke chapter 1, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot. You should underline that in your Bible. Providence is in work here. He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Not every priest got to do that. But on this occasion, he was chosen by God's providence He would enter into the temple and he would throw the incense on the altar and make the smoke come up as a a symbol of prayers going up to God. Now notice what happened. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Four hundred years. Here is the first words since the curse. What's God's first words? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look at this. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name God has been gracious. God has been gracious. Now, I'm sorry. Will you all allow me to diverge for a moment? Imagine this fine Christmas tree as an altar of incense. And on top of this altar are all kinds of red charcoal coals, and they're burning hot. And I get some perfume and ointment, and I walk over here, and, you know, I'm getting ready to pour it on there. And you know what happens when you pour water on fire? It just smokes. What, what was Zechariah praying? Well, we don't know this. Maybe, maybe Zechariah is talking about, uh, Gabriel's talking about in years past, Zechariah wanted a child. He wanted a boy. And he prayed and prayed, oh, Elizabeth can't have children. Oh, God, give us a child. Oh, God, give us a child. And if you've ever been childless, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. Give us a child, Lord. Maybe when Zechariah walked there, he was supposed to be praying for all the people. You know, God bless all these people, make your faith. Instead, maybe he was going, oh, God, give us a child. Doubtful. Probably this was in years and years past. And as he's there and he's getting ready to dump that on the altar, he looks to his left and there stands Gabriel. 400 years of silence. And he was chosen by Lot, didn't even think he was supposed to be there. Now, all of a sudden, he sees Gabriel. Zechariah. Your prayer has been answered. What prayer are you talking about? The prayer you prayed years and years ago. What what, what was that? You're going to have a son. 
Oh, we prayed that back in our 20s and 30s. You don't understand, Gabriel. You see, I'm an old man, and my wife's an old woman, and you know how nature works. That is totally impossible. It is not happening. Now, this is how this transpired. So notice what happens. You will have a son, and not only will you have a son, you're not going to have to fight over what to name him. His name's going to be John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth because he's going to be great before the Lord. He's going to be the forerunner. And that's not a Toyota, by the way. Uh, you know, a forerunner was someone who walked out before the king. Ho, ho, everybody get out of the way. Ho, the king's coming through. Listen to him. He's going to have a messenger. People will rejoice. He'll be great before the Lord. Uh, no Jack Daniels. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Notice the text. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Exactly what God said he would do in the book of Malachi. Now, if I were teaching you this class, you know, if we were teaching a class here, I would turn over to Matthew chapter 17, and we would get into a theological argument of whether Elijah will actually return or whether John the Baptist was the fulfillment of Elijah. Well, I'll just say this. I do not believe John the Baptist was the fulfillment of Elijah. I do believe that Elijah will still come before Jesus returns, and we'll get into that later. But the point was simply this, that if the people would have received John the Baptist as the messenger and the forerunner of Messiah, the official kingdom would have come to the nation of Israel. He would have served the role. But of course, God knew exactly what was going to happen, and John the Baptist was just going to be the forerunner and the messenger, and he was going to preach something that really turned the nation of Israel off, especially the religious leaders. So while I'm at it, just let me show you what it is. Go over to John chapter, Luke 3, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 3, same book, two chapters over. He would be great, he would be the forerunner. What would he preach? Well, let's just read one of John's sermons. Are y'all ready for this? I'm in Luke chapter 3, verse 3. He went into all the region, this is John the Baptist, around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall be made straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now listen to what he preached. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. And by the way, what was this baptism? You know, we have Christian baptism today. Are y'all hearing me? After a person accepts Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection as the payment for their sins, we go into the baptistry and we stand in front of people. It's a public testimony of what has happened in our life. 
that we are identifying with the death, you know, you death, burial, and then the resurrection of Jesus. It is a physical semblance of what happened inside of our heart. That's Christian baptism. What was baptism of repentance? Well, this is where John was standing out in the Jordan River and he was preaching this message and saying, if this is you, come down here and identify with this. Because a king is coming and he's bringing a kingdom. And if this is you, come. Now, what did he preach? Let me read it. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized, you brood of snakes... He was a nice guy, wasn't he? You bunch of low-down snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, you say you are repentant, bear the fruit of it. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, we are good Jews, we are good Israelites, we don't need to repent, it's everybody else. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He doesn't need you. Isn't this interesting? Now, can't you see the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders that came out to see him? Now, folks, this would be like walking into a seminary and looking at the whole theology department and gathering in all the local preachers and everybody who stands in a pulpit. This is who he was talking to. And everybody else who was standing around. And then he begins to say, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You remember what we read in Malachi? The fire would come through and take care of root and branch. Listen to what he's saying. They knew exactly what he was saying. Because they had read this for, from 400 years. He was saying that they were the ones who were wicked. Verse 10, And the crowds asked him, What are we supposed to do? And he answered, Boy, don't you like this kind of application? He answered them, Whoever has two tunics to share with him who has none, give it to him. Quit being selfish. Number two, Whoever has food, quit hoarding it up in your cabinets and give it to those people who are starving to death. Number three, tax collectors also came out to be baptized. Isn't that interesting? Even the IRS had repented. Teacher, what shall we do? Listen to what he said. Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Stop stealing from people. You see, God knew that there was crookedness going on in this nation. And before Jesus came there would come a forerunner who would speak beforehand and say, get it straight. Stop stealing. Verse 14, soldiers came to him. Isn't this interesting? He had the priests, he had the tax collectors, and now he had the police and the military. Listen to what he told them. Soldiers also ask him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with how much money you make. He knew police officers well, didn't he? You know, listen, I was a police officer. 
we always complained about how much we made because it really wasn't enough. But I want you to hear the heart of God. You're serving me, and if, if the people who take the taxes don't have enough common sense to pay you more than you're making, you let me deal with them. But you be content with what you make and don't, because you don't have as rich a money as all these people you're dealing with, don't you dare take bribes or be paid off because you're representing me. Now, by the way, that was a rather hard message. Did you know that? I mean, John the Baptist laid it down there. God answered his prayer. And just because he took a long time to do it didn't mean he wasn't going to answer it. Now, let me plow close to the corn. How many of us pray and forget what we even prayed about and don't expect God to do anything about it and all of a sudden God breaks through and begins to answer our prayers? For example, let's say we have someone in our life who is so stubborn so far from God, we can't imagine God is ever going to break through in their life. And we pray for them. Oh, God, change their heart. Change their heart, oh God. And all of a sudden, God does. And He says, yeah, I'm getting ready to. And I'm going to change them through you. You're going to be the one that I use to change that person's heart. And this is what it's going to require of you. Humility, brokenness, and full dependence upon me. All your pride is going to be gone. It's going, I'm going to break it all away. I'm going to break away all the fact that you have to be right all the time. and I'm going to tear all that away. And I'm going to use you as my broken, humble servant. And I'm going to use you to reach that person and change their heart. And like Zechariah, we go, oh, now wait a minute, God. I, I wanted you to change them, not me. I wasn't praying for you to change me. I mean, I wasn't asking you to do this in my life. I, I was talking about them. And God says, mm-hmm. And I'm talking about you. Now, by the way, when God told Zechariah, I'm going to give you a son, Zechariah said, this is impossible. How shall I know? He asked for a sign. He was in a charismatic church. Did you know that? Give me a sign, God. Zechariah says, I got it. The preacher's mouth will be shut for nine months. You're not going to say a word. Because the last thing you said is, how shall I know? Mm. 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 Now, y'all got the picture? Nine months. His last words were, how shall I know this? This can't be. He's quiet for nine whole months. His wife gets pregnant. She has a son. His name is John. He grows up. He becomes a great preacher. And he prepares the way of Jesus. What's my point? Just because God delays the timing of His answer doesn't mean that He denies it. Don't stop praying. Lesson number two, God often uses the ordinary to accomplish the extraordinary. Now, who is Zechariah? Who is Elizabeth? 
And by the way, who is Mary? Now, let me explain something to you that you may or may not know. Now, you know, the Roman Catholic Church, by the way, has, has caused Mariolatry, that, that is, the, re, the reverence of Mary, to go way, way far, way, way out there. Mary would be horrified if she knew that people were having to pray to her to get to Jesus. Horrified! But, of course, that is just exactly what happened. However, Mary was to be revered, but before that, do you realize how a little girl, a teenage girl, growing up in the hillside country of Shawsville. Now, that would be a comparison, by the way, to Galilee and Nazareth in Galilee. That would be a comparison over the whole state of Virginia. And nothing against Shawsville people, some of the most wonderful people I've ever met. But kind of obscure, not necessarily in the in the center of where things are happening. It's not in the middle of town, not in Blacksburg, not out in Reiner where everybody's moving on the, you know, the, that, that area. In an obscure place and a little obscure girl, and God appears to her. What was Mary's lot? Now, before God intervened in her life, she was probably somewhere in her early teens. I won't get into that argument but probably very early teens. Because as soon as a girl reached the age to where she could deliver children, she was betrothed by her parents to a a young man or an older man. He could have a few years on him. And there was three stages in a Jewish wedding. One was a pledge. This was the betrothal where they were considered married. And then right after this stage was the consummation. During this period, he was getting the house ready. He was getting ready of the dowry and so forth. And he was getting ready to go consummate the marriage. And this is when this happened. This young girl, her only future was to marry her husband, to bear children, and to be faithful in her home. Now, listen to me, ladies. No career advancement. No opportunity. No women's liberation movement. No uh, rising up in rebellion and shaking fists and saying, this is what's going to happen. Mary had no chance at that. Wasn't a chance. She would be submitted in her home to her husband who was a carpenter. That would be Joseph. Not building houses out here on the town, but putting together furniture and things like that. She, She would have never really had this famous career. But Almighty God in His unthinkable ways watches the faithfulness of a young teenage girl who understood that it was important to keep her purity. Okay? Doesn't matter what the rest of the world's doing. You keep your purity. She was faithful to her parents and to her God and living her life just like her normal everyday life in her faithfulness, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, God appears. And the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, and I'm going to start reading this in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, of, in the sixth month that is, of Elizabeth's pregnancy with John, Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, little bitty town nobody would have ever thought about, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. 
and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what the sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Can't you imagine? She was terrified. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Savior. Out of nowhere, from a person who was from nowhere, with no hope, no future, and no concept God would ever take her and use her. She would be the one to carry the Messiah. God often uses ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. And that's exactly what He did here. Now, by the way, you may be living your life, going along in your life, thinking, oh, God could never use me. Please, please stop that. You say, well, well, who am I? Well, let me ask you something. Who was anybody before God ever met them? Who was Abraham? Now, listen closely. Abraham was a young man who grew up watching his father bow down to a moon and worship the moon god. And Abraham was following right in his tracks until God met him one day on a road and said, Abraham, Abraham, you follow me. Who was Abraham? And for that matter, who was Moses? I mean, Moses was nothing but a basket case from the get-go. Did you know that? For those of you who know the story. I mean, he was born and his mother put him in a basket and tried to hide him in the bulrushes. Thousand wonders the crocodiles didn't eat him or the Egyptians didn't kill him. And Moses comes out. Becomes a self-made man, got a Ph.D. from the Egypt University and decided that he could just do things his way. And so one day he saw an Egyptian beating an Israelite and he knew deep down that blood is thicker than water. So he went out and took a stick and clubbed the Egyptian in the head and buried him in the sand. A murderer. So what did God do with Moses? Sent him on the backside of the desert to get his real Ph.D. on the backside of the desert. Forty years chasing sheep around thorn bushes, cleaning the hair, cutting them off and feeding them and wallowing until one day God appeared to him in a burning bush and said, take the shoes off your feet. You're standing on holy ground. I'm going to take you and I'm going to lead my people down in Egypt out and you're going to be the one who leads them to the promised land. And who, what did Moses say? Oh, God, not me. I'm slow of tongue. Slow. You can't use me, God. Shush, Moses. Shush. But God, I'm slow of speech. I'm just an old country. Hush your mouth. Can't you hear God telling him that? Shush. Stop saying I can't use you. Yeah, God, but you don't know. Oh, yeah, you do too. I'm a murderer. I don't have a lot of faith. Spent 40 years of my life chasing sheep. What, what could you possibly do with me, God? I've wasted most of my... Moses, it's not about you, it's about me. 
You may go on down the list. What about Jacob? From Jacob came the twelve tribes of who all these people came from. Do you know who Jacob was? Boy, Jacob was something else. His name means trickster. He was a twin with his brother, and when his brother came out of the womb, Jacob tried to get in front of him and grabbed him by the heel with his hand all the way from birth. And the nurse had the tie, uh, scarlet rag on one of them so she knew which one came out first. Jacob comes out, and boy, he's slick, isn't he? I mean, he is a deceiver from the get-go. You know, some people have that nature with them. They're, they're just filled with deception. You may be one of those people. You know, where you look at somebody and you tell them one thing, but you mean another. And you can twist words and twist things and make them work out just exactly like you want to. And then all the time, pretend that you didn't mean that. This was Jacob. Oh, he was so slick. He told his brother, caught him in the moment of his weakness and got him to sell his birthright, that is, two-thirds of his father's inheritance to him so that he would now take care of his parents, but he would get the money. Esau got so mad he was ready to kill him. Tried to chase him down and kill him. They ran him off, and God took him. You know, God sends all kinds of people to get Ph.D. degrees. Sent him to Uncle Laban. Oh, Uncle Laban was a character now. He was the one to break Jacob. And while Jacob was there, guess what happened? Uh, Laban broke him. But he had lied to his father, pretended to be the oldest instead of the youngest. Well, guess what? He goes to Uncle Laban and tries to marry the youngest, and he gets swapped the marriage and ends up marrying the oldest. Had to work seven more years to get the youngest. And from those two ladies... And their handmaidens come the twelve sons of the tribe of Israel. Can you believe that? You go back and read the story. It's nothing but sordid. Sleep with this one. She can't have kids. Give this one the handmaid. She does. Twelve sons come out of this. And God takes them. And through one of those tribes, namely the tribe of Judah, which we'll talk about next week, brings the Messiah into the world. Here is my point. Stop thinking that God doesn't use ordinary people. As a matter of fact, that's the only kind of people God uses. And He does it to create ordinary, extraordinary things. You know, I am so humbled every time we get to go to Billy Graham's library. And I know Billy Graham wasn't perfect. Please But when you see his upbringing and his home back on the hillside down in nowhere, God took that young man, saved his soul, and traveled all around the world preaching the gospel of Jesus. Unlike anybody else. Nobody else is even compared to what God has done through that man. And he knew he was a nobody. But God used him in great ways. And by the way, God's still in that business. Did you know that? That that is an incredible lesson. Galilee was a despised place. Why would God have ever chosen ordinary Galilee? Far from nowhere and never dreamed that God would ever use a place so filled with outsiders and Gentiles. It would kind of be like us seeing God go in downtown Chicago and drawing someone out to change the world. Galilee 
and Nazareth. Mary, unknown, no hope, no future, and God chooses her. This man, in a commentary, said, From all indications, her life would not be extraordinary. She would be Mary humbly, give birth to numerous poor children, never travel further than a few miles from home, and one day die like thousands of other women before her, unknown and a nobody in the middle of a nothing little town. But God. But God. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and his name shall be called Jesus. And he's going to be great. He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob. How long? Forever. And of his kingdom, there will be... No end. So stop saying just a millennial kingdom. That's not correct. It's an eternal kingdom. The millennial kingdom is just the tailgate party. That's just the tailgate party for all eternity. The third lesson we learn is that God, God's actions are often unexpected and unpredictable. Now I could go down, down, down the list here. Who would have ever dreamed God would have done these things? How would he get a forerunner in? He would get it through the birth of an old man and an old woman. I mean, when God acts in history, folks, this is how he acts. Sarah and Abram, almost a hundred years old. Impossible to have a child except God. And then you go all the way down and you follow the stories where there was barrenness. And God brings life through barrenness because that's the kind of God He is. And He works in unexpected ways. Who would have ever thought the Messiah would come like that? When you read Isaiah 9, 6, you know, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. What did they think about that? They thought that would be a king who would grow up and something would happen and he, all of a sudden he would be just a great leader. They anticipated God coming back from heaven where all eyes would see Him. But instead, God chooses the womb of a virgin teenage girl out in the middle of nowhere to bring God. And this is how He acts. This is how He will be. Notice what He says. And by the way, I just put some notes up here. It's an interesting linkage. We look back on it now. Genesis chapter 3 from the Garden of Eden. When the serpent deceived the man, or I'm sorry, deceived the woman and the man fell. God told the serpent, from the seed of woman, from her seed, and by the way, if you know genealogy, women don't have seed. The seed of the woman will crush your head. How was God going to get the seed of the woman to crush the serpent through the virgin womb of a young girl. How would this happen, by the way? Mary says to the angel, verse 34, How will this be? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The word overshadow there is not Greek mythology. This is not... Sexual relations between a deity and a woman. By the way, if you ever have to read Greek mythology, let's pray for you now. It's nothing but 
uh, intercourse between the gods and the humans. This is not what God's saying is overshadow, has no connotation whatsoever. It's simply this, that Almighty God was going to do a miracle and that the Christ child would be implanted in her womb non-sexually, miraculously. Inside of that woman's womb, the seed of woman, the Christ child, perfect God, perfect man, joined together in a human body, would be joined in her body and she would carry it. Now, by the way, this is totally off topic, but can you imagine the shame and reproach that had to come with carrying the Christ child? You know, lesson number, I could, I could have had a fifth lesson here. I could have had about 20. But, you know, sometimes God brings laud and honor, and sometimes He asks us to bear the shame. Now, can you imagine what people said about Mary? Now, this only happened one time. Don't, don't be trying to say it happens any other time. It was a miraculous implanting of God in flesh in the womb of a woman, and she was expected to carry the shame and not try to justify it. And she was also told, chapter, thir- uh, chapter 1, verse 31, He will take the throne of his father David, He will rule over his house. If you look at the second note up there, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God told David, I'm going to raise up a son from you and he will take your throne. He will reign over the house of Israel forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. All three things that Gabriel said to Mary were exactly from 2 Samuel 7. Fulfillment of promises right here. Hundreds of years went by. God finally acted. And the Davidic covenant will be full. He will be great. Jesus is the great king. Here's a whole other sermon, boy. I could preach on this. He's the great prophet. He's the great priest. He's the great shepherd. And He's the great Savior. Titus chapter 2. What does Titus say? Or what does Paul say to Titus? Our great God and Savior, He has redeemed us. Made for us a people worthy to bear His name. That's how Jesus is great. He's great in many other ways. And He will also be called the Son of the Most High. Now, did this mean the baby? You know, No, actually in the Old Testament, Son of means king. Kingship. If you read the royal psalms in the Old Testament, today this is my son. When a king would take the throne and he would become the king, they would have what's called a coronation ceremony. They would read this psalm. God would say, today you have become my son, representing me. They would crown the king. They would give him royal homage. That's exactly what's happening here. In the womb of that virgin girl, my Son, the King, will reign. Who would have ever imagined that? God going to extraordinary lengths to do unexplainable things. And then the fourth lesson, and we learn this about God quick, don't we? Nothing, nothing is impossible with God. Look at the text in verse 35. 
Mary said to the angel, verse 34, How will this be? He answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. If you don't believe I can do this, go visit your old aunt Elizabeth. She's pregnant. Mary says, yeah, I read on Facebook. I saw that. Can't believe it. And you're the same one that told her? Gabriel says, yes. She's, she's thinking. And this is the sixth month with her. She's showing who was called barren. You remember that? All those people called her barren. Guess what they call her now? Full. She's full. For nothing will be impossible with God. Mary, don't you think it's too hard for God to overshadow you and you carry the Christ child whose name will be Jesus and be great and be the one promised to David back in the back? Mary, you want to do this? This is what's happening. And Mary said, can't you imagine? She's sitting there going, serious. She's, she's got to make a decision here. God's not going to force her. Mary, are you willing to do this for me? And this young teenage girl is having to contemplate, and she says, I'm going to walk around for nine months. I'm betrothed to Joseph. I'm going to be pregnant. He's not going to understand. My parents are not going to understand. There's a lot going on here. Gabriel says, you willing to do this? She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. He chose me to do that and to bear this shame and to bear... I am His servant. Not the gateway to Him. Not the way of salvation for anybody. I am His servant. The mother becomes the servant. I am am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to Your Word. I will accept Your plan for my life. You know what happened? The angel departed. And we know nothing else until the day she gives birth. Now what do we learn from this? Well, hopefully we learn four lessons. A delay in God's timing doesn't mean that He won't answer. That God often uses ordinary people to accomplish His purpose. That God's actions are often unexpected and even unexplained, unpredictable. God is unpredictable, folks. And by the way, nothing's impossible with God. Nothing. You believe that today. Why did Jesus do this? And by the way, now in hindsight, looking back in the Old Testament, we see things, Micah 5.2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... Shouldn't even be counting you as a town. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Oh, now we can link that. Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, and unto us 
a son is given. Oh, human side, child is born. Divine side, a king, son is given. Oh, he will be a human child and a divine king. Oh, now we can put this together. So this human child and this divine king, the government will be upon his shoulder. I'll just carry it. And his name shall be called the Wonderful Counselor. Never have to worry about what to do. He's got the answer. He'll be called the Wonderful Counselor, the El Gabor, the Mighty God. He has no fear of no man or no thing because he is the strong God who is able to protect and provide. He will be called the Everlasting Father. How in the world can you call this child to be born and this son to be given? How can you call him the Father? I mean, we're in the Old Testament. There's not a whole lot about Son, Father, and Spirit here. How are you going to call this child the Everlasting Father? Because when you look at Jesus, it's as if you're looking at the Father. You know why? Because in Him, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. And everything you can say about the Father and His holiness and His righteousness and all He knows, and all, you can say the exact same thing about His Son because there is no difference in their character. He will be the everlasting Father. And praise God for this one. He will be the Prince that brings peace. Now I want you to hear me folks this morning. Nothing's going to bring peace to this world. Not a climate pact. Not a pact for this. Not a vaccine for that. Not a you Keep on going down the list. Solve today's problem and a dozen more will creep up tomorrow. There's only one person in history who's going to ever bring real peace. And his name is the child to be born and the son to be given. And his name will be called Jesus, Savior. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And by the way, in case you think he's just going to come and fizzle out, let me help your hearts. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He will have a big government. Sorry. Jesus is not an American. He's not into a democracy. He's not even into a republic. Jesus will have a theocracy. And He will rule and He will dominate. And listen, the increase of His government will keep on going and of peace, the increase of peace, it'll keep on growing. More peace and more peace. And when you think you've had enough peace, He's going to give you some more peace. Isn't that wonderful? Because we don't have any peace today. But oh, when He comes, peace upon peace. How's He going to do this? Here's how. Are you listening? On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this, this time forward and forevermore. And in case you think that he's not big enough to get the job done, the power of the Lord of hosts, the raging, 
fierce power of the Lord of hosts is going to accomplish this. And do you think it's just going to be for Jerusalem? Well, Isaiah chapter 2 answers that question. Isaiah couldn't help it. He just had to say it. Isaiah chapter 2 saw this. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above all the hills and all the nations shall flow into it. And many people shall come and say, Let us go up to the mountain of the house of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, so that He may teach us His ways and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and He shall judge between nations and shall decide disputes between many peoples, peace upon peace upon peace. And then they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, because there won't be time to fight each other. You'll have to be tilling the garden. And nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more because His government will have no end. He does unexpected things in unexpected ways in unexpected circumstances. And here's the reason He did all that and does all this. It's to make a way, a bridge, if you will, between a holy God and unrighteous men. You know, it's amazing. Greg didn't know everything I was going to preach on this morning. It's amazing he opened it kind of like he did. Because this is the reason the Son was born and given. To bridge a gap. Are you listening, folks? No man could bridge. We would be hopeless and helpless. And I'm sorry, hell-bound. Because we, I'll speak for myself and you can speak for yourself, I am the wicked. I am the wicked one. And you are too. But this great God-man came in flesh, knowing our nature, knowing our lostness, knowing our helplessness, and being misunderstood, misaligned, misinterpreted, died on a cross in our place. Oh, bless His name. Took our place to bridge the gap between God and man. And you know what? What a gap He bridged. And offers that forgiveness and that grace, by the way, to you and me, and not to us only, but to the whole world. Now, let me ask you a question. What do you have to do to receive this grace? Maybe, maybe somebody has stayed online this whole time and endured this whole message to answer and ask this question. What do I do with that? Well, I want you to hear me closely. And this is a whole sermon. I need to preach this sometime. It is not enough for you to come up to the front of this aisle or even stay in your seat and sit there and weep over what a sorry sinner you are. Are you paying attention to me? Listen closely. It is not enough for you to sit there in your seat 
and weep your eyes out over what a sorry sinner you are and then walk out those doors. Because that doesn't do anything, that repentance doesn't do anything but show you what wretchedness you have in your heart. That doesn't save you. That breaks you. That doesn't save you. What saves you is when you realize Almighty God has done something about that wretchedness. And He has offered to take all of your wretchedness and place it upon His Son. To let the wrath of God that was poured out on Jesus be the wrath of God that should be poured out upon you. And what you need to do is trade your sin and put it upon Him and then in return accept His gift of righteousness back to your account. And by the way, folks, repentance and belief are inseparable. Listen closely when it comes to Jesus. The moment you repent of sin and believe on Jesus, both happen at the same time. Do you hear me? I know I'm getting a little technical. But I'm simply saying this. It is not enough to come and just say, I'm a wretched sinner. Oh God, I deserve nothing. Now you need to be there. But that's not enough. And I wonder how many times we leave people stuck in that spot. But do you understand the great transaction that happens? I mean, somebody realizes their wretchedness and they come and they pour their heart out before God. God doesn't leave you there. Friend, He offers you something in return for your wretchedness. And that's His righteousness. You could never get it on your own. And He bestows upon you, if you'll accept His free gift of salvation, He bestows upon you the full righteousness of Jesus. And then Almighty God can look upon you and see you as just as righteous as He is. Do you know, I went for years and years in my life and did not understand this truth. I'll tell you the whole story sometime. But I went to a church and I'm telling you they'd preach hellfire brimstone and I knew I was a wretched little sinner. Didn't know what to do about it. Believe on Jesus Christ as the payment for your sin and the gift of righteousness to you. And He will do that by grace through faith are you saved. It's a gift of God, not of works. Lest any person should boast. Nobody's going to be able to boast. I would encourage you to do that today.